Morning, everyone. Um, it's good to be with you today. <clears throat> good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Denzel. Um, I, I, I was almost going to say I used to be, I'm, I'm a deacon here at Ecclesia, but I'm not here any longer. <laughs> yes, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, glad to see your beautiful faces and the sun shining and all that. Um, I hope you've had a good week. And um, yes, as, as Pastor E just said, we've, we're, we're going through uh, Luke, uh, where we're looking at Jesus, who is the, the, the only hope for humanity. And so um, uh, in last week's passage, uh, in Luke 5, Jesus... Uh, is, well, the last thing Jesus says is that he's doing something completely different than the, than the Pharisees are. Now, the Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders, right? The Jewish leaders of the time, you know, perhaps in the Catholic Church, maybe think about the Pope. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees are those Jewish religious leaders who are over Israel, right? And Jesus says something. He says, you can't put old wine into new wineskins, Right, which in, 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 in other words is what I'm doing and what the Pharisees are doing is not the same thing. They don't work. They don't go together. Right? And this is a big claim because the Pharisees or you know, these Jewish religious leaders, are, they're, they're very highly respected leaders in Israel. Right? They run the show. If, if they say something, it goes. Right? They run the show. But in Luke 6, Jesus is going to do something a bit different than the Pharisees, uh, something different regarding the Sabbath, which for Jewish religious leaders is very, very touchy, right? For, 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 the, for those of you who don't know, the Sabbath is refraining from work on the last day of the week, right? So God created the world in six days, and on the last day, he relented, he ceased from work, and wants his people to do that as well, <clears throat> The, the, so, so, so the Sabbath is also a, you know, a covenant sign, which is an agreement, as it were, between the nation of Israel and God. And so the Sabbath is so fundamental to Jewish identity, right? It's like, it's like jell rice to a Ghanaian, right? It's like, it's so fundamental to Jewish identity, right? In, in, in the history of Israel, uh, God brought the, um, the, the Israelites out of Egypt um, and put them in the promised land. And they were there for a while, but God had to remove them because of their sin. And one of those sins was that they didn't keep the Sabbath, right? Um, and when God placed them back into the land of Israel, they were afraid that if they didn't keep the Sabbath, there would be more trouble for them. So, you know, an example is in Nehemiah 13. Um, Nehemiah sees people doing things on the Sabbath, and he goes crazy. He says, he says, then I confronted the nobles in Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and our city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so from, from that time onward, the leaders of Israel were very, very sensitive about Sabbath keeping. You know, they thought that we must make sure that we keep every single little part of the law or God is going to, you know, kick us out of the land again. 
And so what they did is that they made laws around the Sabbath in order to protect it. So they're like, you know, everyone in the land must keep the Sabbath. To help everyone to do that, we have to make laws around the Sabbath so that they can keep it. So, you know, imagine that you're, 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 you know, you're driving uh, uh, in a 30-mile-an-hour in a zone, and you're going 23 miles an hour, and then a police van comes darting down and stops next to you, and, you know, the police officer gets out of his car, and um, he, he, he like, knocks on your window, you know, tells you to, you know, to roll the window down, and says, you're doing the 23, you're in the 30. And you're like, yeah, I'm doing 23, I'm in the 30. But then he says, in order to stop anyone from breaking the 30-mile-an-hour rule, um, you've got to go under 20, right? So I'm going to write you up as breaking the law, right? Because you're going above 20. Even though, even though 30 is the limit, you're going above 20. And so they made a law around the law, as it were. And so this is the kind of context that uh, Jesus is, is, is challenging the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath. And it's the context in which he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And so I'm going to read and I'm going to pray and uh, just kind of walk through the text and hopefully draw out some things that might be helpful for us. Right? So, so we're in Luke 6 from verse 1 to 19. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, sorry, after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured 
And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your loving kindness to us. Our dear Father, I pray that as I speak, uh, would Christ reassure and gift, encourage and uplift his people? Uh, And would you grant us rest? Um, I pray, Lord, uh, that you would give us receptive hearts to hear your word. Uh, And anything that's troubling us, would you help us to bring that to you? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you have two Sabbath stories from verses 1 to 11. You have uh, uh, the first one from verses 1 to, to 6 or 5, and then from 6 to 11. And so in the first one, Jesus and the disciples uh, are walking through a grain field, and they're hungry. And as they're walking, uh, they're plucking heads of grain, right? If you think of a, uh, you know, heads of grain, uh, if you're not sure what that means, um, think of a Weetabix box and, you know, the, the sticks that's on the, on the Weetabix box. And so... They're, they're, they're plucking heads of grain in their hands, and then they're rubbing them together in order to separate the part of the grain that you can eat and the part of the grain that you can't eat, right? And the Pharisees are watching Jesus really closely uh, because they want to catch him out. And they kind of come out the bushes, and they accuse them of breaking the Sabbath, right? When they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, they're referring to the action of, of rubbing your hands together, right, to separate the grain, um, and in their strict interpretation of the law, that means that you're, you're harvesting, you're farming on the Sabbath, which means that you're working on the Sabbath, on the day that you're not supposed to, right? And Jesus responds to them uh, with a story about David in the Old Testament. So David was, um, at this point, uh, he was kind of a high soldier, a general, as it were, in, the, in, 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 in Israel's army. Um, and David is on the run from King Saul. Uh, king Saul is, is, the, is the king at the time, and he's kind of gone a bit mad, and he's gone after David to try and assassinate him. David and his men escape to a different part of, 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 of Israel, and he goes into the local tabernacle, the local place of worship. And uh, because they've been on the run, uh, they haven't had time to eat, so they're, they're, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're starving. David runs into the temple and asks the priest, is there any food here in this temple for me to eat? And the priest says, there's no food here in the temple except the bread of the presence or the showbread, which is, which is basically the, the kind of holy bread that sits uh, on the table of showbread before the presence of God. Um, it was only for the priest to eat. Uh, it, it was called an inheritance for the priest. And uh, after it was removed from the table, uh, a fresh batch was always put on there to, 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 to replace. So there's always bread there in the temple. Uh, you know, perhaps that's why David ran into the temple. And so David asked for this bread. And the priest, realizing David's need, gives him holy bread. Right? He doesn't say, this holy bread is, is too holy for you, it's too special for you, you can't have it. But he shows compassion. Right? He doesn't try and be overly strict with the law, but he shows compassion to David and gives him the bread. Right? And, and there's a sense in which it's not that big a deal anyway, because as soon as the bread is removed from the table, it's, it's replaced, right? So it's replaced immediately. And so Jesus uses this story and draws a parallel between David and himself and his disciples. Uh, in David's case, you know, the bread that sat in the presence of God was only for the priests, but there's a sense in which bread is still bread, right? It's still edible food that you can eat if you're hungry, 
and David's men were in need of food. And so the priority there for the priest wasn't strictly keeping the law and ignoring people's need, right? That's the main point. It's not about keeping the law and letting people suffer, um, but it's about showing compassion to human need. And in a similar way, Jesus' men were in need of food as they're walking. They're, you know, probably exhausted. And the actual biblical Sabbath law is not so strict that they can't have a little snack, right? And so Jesus isn't concerned about keeping the laws of the Pharisees. Uh, He's not keeping those laws that they add to the Bible, right? Because he doesn't want to ignore his disciples' needs. They're his people. They're his his people. He, He wants to make sure that they're fed. And then he says to the Pharisees, the son of man, which is a kind of royal title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, he says, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? And we'll come to that a bit later. So that's the first Sabbath story. Then you have another Sabbath story where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. There's a man there whose hand is withered. It's unusable. Uh, it's probably quite painful. And um, you know, we're not told whether or not the Pharisees you know, bring this man into the temple to try and trap Jesus. Um, it's, you know, it's possible that they did so. Um, but in the Pharisees' law, on the Sabbath... Unless it's a life and death emergency, you can't give medical attention, right? So this man, he might be in pain, his hand is unusable, but it's not a life or death situation. Um, And so the Pharisees are using this guy as bait to see whether or not Jesus uh, will heal him. And so Jesus is is in a room with these these highly respected Jewish leaders, right, Who, who, who in one sense have have their life in his hand, right? Because they, they, they can conspire whether or not they want to get rid of him. Um, but he doesn't care about them, right? He, he calls the man up to the front so everyone can see, and he asks the Pharisees a penetrating question, right? He says, on the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Which, in other words, is saying, is it right to show compassion and to... Help human need, or is it right to neglect and ignore human need because of your made-up law? And they don't answer him, right? And Jesus looks around at them, and he becomes angry because these are the leaders of Israel. They're the shepherds of God's people. They're supposed to care about God's people, right? They know God's law in and out from top to bottom, but they genuinely don't care whether or not people are hurting, or if they're hungry, they don't care. I think this is really funny. They, 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 they don't care that Jesus can perform a supernatural act to heal another human being, right? They're so, their hearts are so hard um, that they're actually hoping Jesus would do a supernatural act so that they can trap him, so they can kill him, right? But again, Jesus is not, is not intimidated by them, and he has compassion for the man and he heals him right the man's you know the man's hand works again as it were and because it works again on the sabbath no pun intended um the people are the people are very upset um or the the pharisees are very upset Uh, you know i think very upset is a you know is an understatement it says that they're filled with fury Uh, another translation says that they are filled with foolishness and madness which I think it's a Greek way of saying they lost their, they lost their mind, right? <laughs> and then they go out to plan how to destroy Jesus, 
right? So, 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 in, so in one sense, they, they actually answer Jesus' question because they then go out, in a sense, to work on the Sabbath to figure out how to kill Jesus, how to destroy him. And so I want to suggest some things from, from these Sabbath stories that I hope will be helpful. Uh, the first is the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. Again, Jesus is the new wine, and the Pharisees are the old wineskin. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, it bursts, right? We have bottles, so we don't really kind of understand that, but that's the, that, that's the picture that he uses. In both Sabbath stories, the Pharisees, who are Israel's leaders with authority over the law, are not concerned about their people, right? Again, they don't care if you're hungry, if you're exhausted. They don't care if you need medical attention. Their concern is about keeping every single little letter of the law, every single little detail of the law. And you see that in verse 2. You see how meticulous they are and obsessive they are over every little thing, like even the action of rubbing your hands is classed as, as farming because you're separating that which you can eat from that which you can't eat. And they're quick to shout, sin, sin. You know, under them, under Pharisees, I'm sure no one had any bananas on the, on the Sabbath because you have to peel it and that would be, that would be considered, you know, harvesting. Um, you couldn't drive to church because that would be classed as operating heavy machinery, right? And the fact is they, they did have very strict laws on the Sabbath. So, uh, you know, in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament called the, the intertestamental period, um, you, you, you know, you have various documents that, that, that would have kind of, you know, the Pharisees would have uh, uh, used. Um, and in those documents, there were various rules, like you couldn't walk more than a thousand cubits, which is... Uh, about 0.2 miles, so that's maybe from here to Asda, um, uh, which means that you couldn't walk from here to, to Lewisham, uh, to Lewisham Station, because that's 0.7 miles. Um, so on the Sabbath, you couldn't do that. Um, you couldn't open a, you know, a sealed vessel, so if you like Nutella on your toast on Sunday, um, you couldn't have it. Um, <laughs> you couldn't ride in a boat. Uh, you couldn't start a fire on the Sabbath, right? So in winter... Uh, uh, you know, everyone is freezing. You couldn't even wear perfume on the Sabbath, right? And, you know, I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh, God, I can't go to the temple stinking. You, know? <laughs> you couldn't wear perfume on the Sabbath. Such were the laws that the Pharisees placed on the people. But the Sabbath day is meant to be a day of rest, a day of blessing, and a day of joy, Right? But they so twisted God's law that the day of rest became a day of legalism and oppression. Uh, the day of rest actually became, for them, a day of work. Again, if you need medical attention for you, if you are in pain, the day of, the day of rest became a day of pain. You know, they turned God's law from something instructive to something destructive, something that destroys and crushes their people. And, you know, that kind of makes me question, what then is the law supposed to be? What's the law really for? You know, when, you know, when we think about the idea of laws and rules, especially uh, God's law and terms like religion, um, we, we kind of fundamentally see it in that way, that it's a, it's a mechanism that's used to restrict. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of our idea of, is, you know, is that... Um, is that God's law is there so that we can't enjoy or don't enjoy life, right? We think that God's law is just, you can't do this, 
Uh, don't do that. Don't touch that. You can't play here. You can't go there. You can't read this. You can't watch that. And because of that, we, 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 we naturally tend to contrast law and freedom, right? So on the one hand, you have law, which in our heads means restriction and oppression. And on the other hand, you have freedom or no law, which we think, which we think means freedom, right? So uh, it's the month of June. It's, you know, it's Pride Month. Um, and, you know, it kind of celebrates that kind of boundless freedom where there's no law, um, there's no boundaries above me. I'm free to be whoever I want to be um, or whatever I want to be. And it's not just in pride and that topic. It's also in, you know, in art, in music, in politics, in church life, in our personal life. Uh, we think that no law equals freedom. So that's freedom. But then on the other side, there's a sense in, in which in every one of us, there's, there's a part of us that says, you know, forget freedom. I want some law. I want some restriction. And we become authorities over other people and over ourselves and kind of, you know, make up, you know, make up laws that people, you know, should, 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 you know, should follow. If, if people don't think the way I do, if people don't do, you know, the things I do or I think are, are right according to my arbitrary standard, then they're, you know, they're out of step. And as believers, we can knowingly and unknowingly have traditions and opinions and way of doing things that really, you know, we fight for and that we impose on other people as if they're written in scripture. You know, we can be legalistic uh, and we can find our righteousness, as it were, in how much fun we don't have. Um, and out of telling people <laughs> how they should and shouldn't act and judging people by our own standards because we think that we are righteous. But the fact is, leaning too hard in, in the way of law and leading too hard in the way of freedom are both temptations to evil, right? You know, the legalist, uh, the person who focuses on law too much, becomes oppressive and judgmental and, quite frankly, very annoying. <laughs> At the same time, the free, on the freedom side, uh, those who lean too much that way, it becomes anarchy and chaos and senselessness because it's just a free-for-all. Um, but Jesus shows us the true way, right? Jesus reveals something about the true heart of God or the true heart of God's law that was impossible for the Pharisees to grasp. And it's that God's law, especially in the Sabbath, is for freedom and for rest. Again, that, that, that probably sounds really alien, that law is to equal freedom. Um, in Mark's account of this same story, uh, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, 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 they tell you know, the stories of the, of, the, of the gospel, and sometimes the stories overlap. In Mark's account of the gospel, he gives a few more details about this particular conversation. And uh, I think it's really important. Jesus says in that account, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right? The, man, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is saying... That the heart of God's law, the heart of the Sabbath, is not fundamentally to make people slaves of rules and restrictions, but it's actually for people, right? It's not fundamentally about not walking 0.2 miles, or not wearing perfume, or not rubbing grain between your hands. 
It's actually a means by which God cares for your physical and spiritual well-being. And to deny human needs by focusing so much on every little, tiny little bit of the law misses the point, and it distorts the original intention of the Sabbath and for his law. So the Pharisees, they burdened people. They crushed people. But the Sabbath was instituted for freedom and for salvation. You know, before God gives the Ten Commandments, um, you know, which, which the, you know, the Sabbath is included in those, uh, he, you know, he doesn't say, I'm in charge, do every little thing that I say. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, he's saying, I am the Lord your God. I saved you, right? I, you can expect good things from me. Take refuge in me. Find freedom in me. I am the Lord your God, right? He gives himself in a sense, and then he gives his law. And so Jesus, in one sense, is wrestling the Sabbath day back from these oppressive leaders, from these oppressive rulers of Israel, and is saying that I, not you and your arbitrary laws, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Jesus is showing that across the board, a new kingdom is coming, and he is the king of it, right? There's a new, there's a new sheriff in town, and it's not the Pharisees. It's not anything else, you know, in the previous chapters, you know, God's people are, you know, harassed by powerful and life-destroying demons. And Jesus shows his authority and he kicks them out. God's people are plagued by sickness. And Jesus shows his authority and he heals their diseases. God's people are overcome by sin and guilt. And Jesus shows his authority and forgives sin and guilt. And here, God's people are oppressed by evil leaders who don't care about people. And Jesus shows his authority and says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he restores the Sabbath back to a day of rest and blessing and mercy. He restores it back to a day of goodness and saving life. Right? And that's because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's his Sabbath day. And on his Sabbath day, what Jesus likes to do is to feed his people. And what Jesus likes to do is to heal the sick. Right? Jesus embodies the true essence of God's law and of the Sabbath. So how might that apply to us today? Uh, I think, I think there's, there's two implications. The first is how we view and understand the Sabbath, which I want to you know, come on to in a few, in a few moments. Um, but the second is this. The second is that Jesus frees us from the oppression of the law to the true purpose of the law. Right? Jesus frees us from the oppression of the law to the true purpose of the law. What do I mean by that? We don't have to try and keep the law for the sake of trying to be perfect before God because Jesus lived that perfectly sinless life that we couldn't and that we can't and that if we trust him, his perfectness covers us before God, right? As if we lived perfectly. 
So in Romans 10.4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law. That is, he has accomplished everything the law requires for us on our behalf. And it says, And all who believe in him are made right with God. Right? And so because of that, Martin Luther says, The gospel quiets the voice that terrorizes and accuses our consciences when we fail to live rightly. Right? I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that voice, if you've you know, done something wrong, if you've, if, you, if you've sinned in a certain way, and you hear that voice that tells you, you're, you're, you know, you're just a horrible sinner, you're such a bad person, God doesn't want anything to do with you. you know? Jesus decisively, he quiets that voice that comes against you, because God has forgiven you in Christ. Can I get an amen? Like, goodness. Amen? Amen. (laughs) And so Jesus frees us from the oppression that the law has set over us. Right? We're no longer slaves to the law. We don't have to try and, you know, make sure I've done every single little thing today. And even if we do fall or fail, Jesus quiets the voice that, that convicts us. Or not convicts us, but the voice that, you know, seeks to destroy our souls and says, God doesn't want you anymore. Jesus quiets that voice. He frees us from the oppression the law has over us. Yet there's a sense in which the gospel actually drives us back to the law, right? But, it's, but in its restored form, right? So Jesus frees us from the oppression of the law, but he also drives us back to the true um, restored form of the law, right? The gospel returns us to God's law for its intended purpose. And I think the, the essence or the heart behind God's law is, is one, is that it's God's love to us, and two, it's God's love through us, right? The law, the essence of the law is God's love to us and God's love through us. The law is both God's gift to us and it's to be directed toward our neighbor, you know, those who are around us, our families our friends, our colleagues, and so on and so forth, right? And this is what Jesus does when he restores the Sabbath, right? Again, he says the Sabbath, which was one of God's laws, the Sabbath was made for man, right? And that's God's gift to man. The Sabbath was God designed this day for us, for people, right? But then he also says in verse 9 that the Sabbath was intended for doing good and for saving life, right? That means that the Sabbath is for showing mercy to our neighbor. And I think that principle is summed up really well in Galatians 5, 13 to 14, right? It says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Freedom is God's gift to us, right? We experience that freedom. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So we're called to freedom, God's gift. We are free in Christ. He's paid all of our sin and debt. And we no longer have to to be perfect in order to be righteous before God. Because Christ has already accomplished that for us. That's God's gift to us of freedom. But then we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for ourselves but we use it for others to love and serve one another, right? And that should control how we see God's law and God's word in our lives. 
God's gift to us and God's love through us, right? You know, do you believe uh, that the heart of God is that he watches your every move to see if you failed in, in the smallest part? And if you do, then he's displeased with you. He's not happy with you. Do you see God's law as a burden to you, or is it really God's gift to you for your well-being, to order your steps, to bring God's blessing in your life? You know, think of you know, Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, sits, or no, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, but his delight is in the law, in the instruction of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night, and it makes him a miserable person. <laughs> no. It says he will be like a tree that is planted by streams of water that bring forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf never withers, and in whatsoever he does, he prospers. That's God's law for you. And again, we don't believe that because we think law is just, you know, it's just restriction, it's oppression. But again, Jesus renews, he restores our view of God's law. That he wants us to be like trees. He wants us to be thriving. He wants us to be blessed. Do you see God's law as a means to getting uh, some kind of inner holiness or righteousness um, that makes you more impressive before God, even if it's at the cost of other people? Are you the kind of person, are you the kind of parent when you're reading your Bible and your child comes, you just get out. <laughs> I'm trying to be holy. <laughs> Is your house a house of, don't touch that, don't do this? Or is it a place of love for your neighbor? Is it a place for you to have mercy on people? Is your idea of religion for other people? Moving on to, to verses 12 and 16. Um, with the growing tensions between uh, himself and the Pharisees, Jesus is, is in one sense kind of running out of time, uh, especially as people are trying to kill him, right? You know, if people are trying to kill you, you don't have much time, much time left, right? And so not long after this section, uh, it says that Jesus goes up a mountain to pray, and he prays the whole night, right? He prays from when the sun goes down to when the sun comes up. And by the time it's morning, um, it's at this point in his ministry that he chooses 12 apostles from the large group of people who follow him, right? You know, we usually think that Jesus just had 12 people, but uh, uh, it's likely Jesus had a, a kind of wider crowd around him. And so from that wider crowd, crowd of disciples, uh, he chooses 12 apostles. And this is important because, again, you know, the nation of Israel is defined as a Sabbath-keeping nation, right? The Sabbath is that agreement between God and the nation of Israel. And Jesus has said, I am the Lord of that Sabbath. I am the Lord of you know, in one sense, he's saying, I am the God of Israel, right? And so Israel has 12 tribes. And here, Jesus chooses 12 men to be his apostles. 
And so there's a sense in which Jesus isn't just the Lord of the Sabbath here. He's the Lord of, of a new Israel, a new kingdom. Uh, and that's what he's doing. That's why uh, what he's doing doesn't fit into what the Pharisees are doing, because he's doing something completely different. He is building for himself a completely different kingdom. Um, and sometimes we use the words uh, apostles and disciples interchangeably, which I don't think is necessarily wrong, um, but, you know, they mean different things, right? So a disciple means a student and a follower, whereas an apostle means, um, or, or an apostle is, is, is more authoritative than that, right? Apostle means sent one. An apostle holds a very unique role, right? They are the representative of a king, and they have the authority to speak on behalf of a king, right? The, so, so the apostle carries within himself the authority of the one who sent him, right? So there's a sense in which Jesus is an apostle of the Father, right? Um, Jesus is the one whom the Father sends. He's given the Father's authority. And here, Jesus labors for hours and hours in prayer to choose his 12 sent ones, to choose those whom he will give his authority you know, and again later and afterwards, um, uh, uh, and you know, in later parts of Scripture, he says, "Those who receive you, my apostles, receive me." That is the kind of close linked relationship of authority that the, that an apostle carries with them. And so, a few important things to note: the first is that Jesus chooses very ordinary men, uh, very unimpressive men, to be his apostles. He doesn't go for kind of special bourgeoisie. Uh, uh, people who are applauded and, and, and loved by society, as it were. He goes for fishermen um, like Simon and Andrew and James and John. Uh, you know, they're not the wisest kind of men. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't kind of necessarily put them over your kingdom if you, wanted, if you had anyone to choose from in society. Uh, you know, he goes for a tax collector, uh, which is Matthew, you know, who, who many people, you know, both, both among his disciples and in the wider society, they would, they would likely hate Right. He goes for a political revolutionary. He goes for Simon the Zealot, um, uh, who you know, wanted to overthrow Rome by means of, of violent force. And so Jesus, in building his new kingdom, uh, you know, I guess in our day and age, you know, he kind of you know, goes for the construction worker. He kind of goes for the, you know, the taxman who's betrayed his family. He goes for someone from a nationalist party. That's, that's the kind of weird and wacky people that Jesus goes for, right? I'm not saying that construction workers are wacky, but, you know. <laughs> and these are the kind of people that Jesus gives his authority to, right? Um, the church, which is God's new kingdom, as it were, in Ephesians 2.20, it tells us that the church is built on the, author is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, right? So the apostles are, they're very important. They're, 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 they're so important. Uh, they are the ones Jesus chooses to reveal himself to when he rises from the dead. He calls them, he says, you are my witnesses. Um, they are the ones Jesus commissions to continue his mission, right? And there's a sense in which we, you know, we have to realize that without them, without these fishermen, without this tax collector, without these you know, political revolutionaries, we don't know anything about Jesus, 
right? You know, you have those kind of red-letter Christians that say, I only read the words of Jesus. I don't listen to Paul. Not sure about James. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm not interested in that, in that. I only like to read just the red letters. But the fact is, unfortunately for them, uh, those red letters are actually the words of the apostles, right? We don't have any direct words of Jesus. They are the words of the apostles and people within the apostles' uh, circle, right? We don't know anything about Jesus except for them. Jesus has so entrusted himself um, entrusted his, his authority to them. Again, these are the ones that Jesus labored for in prayer, and he did so for us. Again, the Lord of the Sabbath is always thinking about his people, right? The, the, you know, the apostles in Ephesians 4, it tells us that they are God's gift to the church. In Acts chapter 2, the, you know, the early church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. And I think this relates importantly to the fact that Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, Because the last time I checked, uh, as Christians, we usually worship on a Sunday and not on a Saturday, which the Saturday is is the Sabbath. Um, I work for for London City Mission, and so, you know, every now and again we do, I say every now and again, all the time we do evangelism. And um, every now and again I come across uh, um, my favorite group of people, uh, black Hebrew Israelites, (laughs) um, and those who are conscious. and I come across Seventh-day Adventists. They, well, they don't say this, but more the black Hebrew Israelites say this. Um, and they, and you, know, if they, you know, they ask me where I'm from usually, um, and they ask me if I'm a Christian, or, or I tell them I'm a Christian. And when I tell them that, they say that I'm a pagan. Um, <laughs> uh, they say that I am following a pagan Roman Catholic religion. Right? They tell me that Christians like me, who call Jesus Jesus, in the anglicized version, are not using God's name, that we should use uh, um, his proper name, Yeshua, or Yeshia, or Yeshua, all right? And they say, that they, they say to me that Constantine wrote the Bible, um, or, you know, you know, and many other things. But they also say a really important thing. They say that worshiping on a Sunday is not the proper day of worship. They say it's idol worship, and that uh, to worship on a Sunday is to worship the sun, hence Sunday, right? It's genius, right? <laughs> and, they, and they judge me, and they say, you are profaning the Sabbath, and they come around me like little black Pharisees, and they condemn me, and they say, and they say what you are doing is not lawful, all right? <laughs> but, what they choose, but what they choose not to understand is that upon the authority given to Jesus by the apostles, Sunday is a proper day of worship, right? Right from the beginning of the church, the apostles that Jesus chose, chose the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Christ as that genuine and unique Christian day, right? In John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, John repeatedly says, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, in Acts 20, in Revelations 1, Revelation 1, the early church met on the first day of the week. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost fell upon Jesus' disciples, when they were gathered together, it was eight weeks directly after the resurrection and was on the first day of the week. The church in all its branches and denominations as it were, either, you know, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox, and the Protestant Church, 
as rooted in historical faith, historical Christian faith, universally meet on Sunday. I mean, we argue about a lot of things, but Sunday is not a day that we argue about. It's the day of Christ's resurrection. It's the Lord's day. And again, there is you know, nuance to this, but on the authority of the apostles and his church, Sunday is the Lord's day. You know, under the old covenant, uh, man had to work for six days before he could rest. But now, because of Jesus' resurrection, we rest first in Christ and then go out to work and then go into the world. We go there refreshed and restored and, and accepted and loved by him already. You know, we don't have to earn that, as it were, at the end of the week, but rather we start the week with that. And that's what Sundays are for, right? It's our weekly Sabbath. It's for us, right? The Sabbath, the Lord's Day, was made for us. On this day, every week, we find our true identity. We find our true meaning here as we gather to worship. You know, the world around us is just exhausting and it's taxing. Everyone is always on the grind. Everyone is always trying to achieve something. Everyone's anxious and under pressure from their bosses. The world is just nonstop. And, you know, you know no matter how technologically, uh, with AI and, you know, whatever it is, no matter how industrially advanced we are, we're not God, right? We can't keep going all the time. We don't have to strive all the time. We don't have to always be in the rat race all the time. We don't always have to keep up. Because we are not most fundamentally what we do or how much we achieve, right? But we were created by a loving God. We were made by a loving God. He is the creator, not us. And he saved us by his work, not our work, right? And so weekly, we need rest and refreshment. Again, we, you know, we, we, we grow so deluded by the world's story. We grow so deluded uh, to think that we are self-sufficient and that we have it all and we become so self-consumed um, and we think we can take over the world, right, and just keep going and keep going and keep going. But on this day, as we're able, we're supposed to rest. We're supposed to put things down. We put down the things of the world and we open up our, our empty hands and receive Christ we received Christ for us. Right? We receive his death and resurrection life for us. We receive um, God's gifts, Christ's gifts to us in the church. We receive his love afresh. We receive his rest. And then we go back into the world shaped by God's story, not by the world's story. We go back into the world shaped by the Lord Jesus and who we are in him not by the world. And you know, rest is what God intends for his new creation. We are his new creation in Christ. He um, is, is making all things, all things new. And there's one day where he will completely do that, right? And so true rest is what Jesus came to bring. True rest is what Jesus wants us to enjoy in him. You know, he doesn't expect us to keep going and keep going until we burn out. He doesn't expect us to labor and labor until our backs break. 
He wants us to rest in him. He wants us to rest in the Lord of the Sabbath himself. And in, in verse 17 and verse 19, we kind of get a preview of that in those, in those last verses. Right? So, so, so Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples. And they come down from this high mountain, right? which in itself is, is a visual image of, of God's heart toward us. That we don't have to strive and work hard and ascend to climb a mountain. Right? But he descends to us. He comes down low to us. He comes down to the level place. In verse 17, where everyone from far and wide can hear him. Right? God is not distant from us. But he comes to a place where everyone can reach him. Everyone can reach out their hand and touch him. And he comes down so that his life-giving power can go out from him and heal us and restore us. And give us rest from all that troubles us. You know, this scene of Jesus' power just going out for all who are in need. You know, Jesus, again, is the hope of humanity. That picture of Jesus just standing there and his power goes out and heals everyone who comes is, is, is a foretaste of the end of time. Right? Where the dwelling place of God is with man. You know, that, that God comes down to dwell with us at the end of all time. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. And God himself will be with us and he will be our God. Like when he gives us his law, he begins with, I am the Lord your God. That is his desire. He wants to be our God. He wants to be the one from whom we get goodness and we find refuge and we have peace. And it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, any crying, nor pain for the former things that working, that, that striving, that struggling have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. That's the rest that Jesus is bringing and ultimately will bring. And so we must rest in Jesus. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, which means he is, very simply, he is the Lord of rest. He is the Lord that gives rest and he wants to give that to you. Where do you find rest? Um... Do you believe that God just wants to burden you and give you more work? Do you believe that he doesn't care about the real and, and personal details of your life and just wants to, just wants to make you a law keeper for the, sake of, for the sake of it? You know, we have to really ask, does, does Jesus really care? Is Jesus really for us? You know, life is, life is difficult. We suffer in so many ways. We, we, we suffer from disappointment. Uh, again, we cry. There is pain. We mourn. We strive in so many ways, trying hard to work hard and keep going and show a brave face. And then we burn out doing so. And we feel crushed. We struggle in so many ways. Does Jesus really care? 
I believe he really does. Right? He's the Lord of rest. And the Lord of rest says to all of us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are carrying burdens, all who are working and stressing our lives away. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke, take my burden upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your weary souls. That's the promise that Jesus gives to every one of us. Let's pray. Um, our Father, we thank you for um, sending your apostle, as it were, for sending the Lord Jesus. And that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. May it be, Lord, that we rest in him and only in him. If we're burdened, if we are tired, if we are stressed and anxious, may it be, Lord, that we, we trust in the Lord Jesus and rest in him. Help us, Lord, on the Lord's day to put down the things of the world and the things that distract us and to really just center ourselves upon you. And would, that, and would it be that from there, loved and accepted by you, given your death and resurrection life, we would go out into the world refreshed, restored, and renewed. We pray these things in the name of your, of your son, I pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.